the second episode of the Retromania podcast. Thanks for joining us. Um, I'm here with my co-host Jim Loki, with Liv Shreve, Guy Gardino, and David Stevens. And tonight we are going to be talking about the movie The Neverending Story. When we announced the podcast, this was definitely the movie that was most requested. Most people talked about having some sort of uh, vestigial trauma from their childhood. So uh, let's get into it. Um, Neverending Story has an 83% Rotten Tomato score, 81% audience score, and a 7.3% on um, IMDb. It is a fantasy film co-written and directed by Wolfgang Peterson based on the 1970 novel The Neverending Story by Michael Ende. I, I think I'm pronouncing that right. Movie follows a boy named Bastion who finds a magical book that tells of a young warrior who is given the task of stopping the nothing, a dark force from engulfing the wonderland world of Fantasia. The movie, however, only covers half of the novel. This movie on the surface appears to be an archetypical hero's journey, but breaks the fourth wall. This combination creates a unique storytelling experience and transcends the boundaries of fantasy and reality. Um, so... Um, it made a hundred million in the box office, making it the most, uh, I'm sorry, it cost a hundred million dollars to produce it, making it the most expensive film produced outside of the United States or the Soviet Union. And it was released on April 6th, 1984 in Europe and July 20th, 1984 in the United States. So, um, let's get into a little bit about, um, what was going on on July 20th, 1984 the number one movie in the country on July 20th, 1984 was Ghostbusters. But in doing my research on this, the top four movies at that time were Gremlins, The Karate Kid, and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Those all rounds out the force. So like, what, a, what a time to be alive and in a multiplex. The summer so much of childhood trauma all in one weekend. 1984. How do you pick what you're going to go see? Just unbelievable roster of heavy hitters. Uh, the number one song in the country was When Doves Cry by Prince. And I think the video for that was also... Uh, was this the best week in existence? <laughs> right. This is the best week ever. Let's do it. Best week ever, right? Okay, so let's uh, talk about some things that were going on um, in the summer of 1984 around the world. Well, you know, we're going to kind of focus on the United States, but we have around the world. Okay, on July 17th, the National Minimum Drinking Age Act was passed in America. Those under the age of 21 could no longer buy or possess alcohol. Where the act was passed, the legal drinking age was 18. So maybe not the best week ever. The They give with one hand and they take with the other. Um, um, let's see. 
And July 18th, the San Ysidro McDonald's massacre happened. There's a pretty great documentary on Netflix about that called 77 Minutes. Um, in San Diego, California, declared the deadliest shooting by a single human, James Oliver Huberty. He killed 21 people and injured 19 others um, before being taken down by a police sniper. The rooftop opposite the restaurant. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Not loving it. And finally, uh, James Fuller Fix, an American who wrote the 1977 best-selling book, The Complete Book of Running, and who was credited with help starting America's fitness revolution by popularizing the sport of running um, and regular dog jogging, died of a heart attack at the age of 52 while running. So <laughs> take that. Take, take that. At least Dr. Atkins didn't die from what he was popular for. Come on, man. Yeah, I mean, the the irony is swift. Um, so before we dive into the uh, plot of the movie and break it down, I'm going to ask you guys, what memories do you have of when we were kids watching this movie for the first time before the rewatch? What were your feelings about it going into it? I guess I'll start with that. Um, it was one of those movies that I absolutely loved, but it scared the shit out of me in equal measure. Uh, especially uh, the uh, the trial of the sphinxes. Jesus Christ! Yeah, why do they have giant tits? <laughs> well, I, I mean, not even just that, but when the when the dead knight's visor flips open and it's just like his burnt, desiccated skull with like the little bits of burnt flesh sticking to it. Like my my little six year old ass was not ready for that. I, I was thinking of that. Yeah, that was that was the first bit I thought of, even more than uh, you know, even though for me it, it's and probably a lot of other people that it was our tax drowning in the swamp. Yeah. Like that yeah. was fucked. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, guy. I mean that that was a really hard part to watch, and that made a lot of us cry for sure. But like like that dead, like half melted skull. Like, even when we did the rewatch, I had you, to would you, like I had to hide my my eyes for a second, and I watched say, Game of Thrones. Right. Okay. Would you say that you liked it when you were a kid? No. Oh yeah, I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Okay, so here's. Yeah. Here, I went into ahead, it, I went into it like I was going to clean my grandmother's commode. Yeah, I I had a similar experience, Jim, and I always thought that I like this movie i was always told that i like this movie and when we were going to go into it i just had this overwhelming feeling of dread and i was thinking i was like did i actually like this movie as a kid because i don't have many fond associations with it and i really think that you know i like to say that if my mom were born 30 years later she would be a goth she likes really dark depressing things and i was like did my mother gaslight me into thinking that I like this movie and I ran that theory by my mom so I was like you know on the podcast we're going to do the never ending story so, oh we love that movie and I'm like did I mom did I love that movie yeah. because that's not the memory I'm having and I have a feeling that you like this movie and and she's like you know that's very possible she owned it I confronted her with this and she owned it so yeah I don't think I like this movie I'm, I think I'm I thought I was supposed you're to going this way because I thought I was going to be the lone wolf saying that it was really hard to get through no yeah no i i 
I had a hard time with it. I I liked it, but I didn't love it. And, and, even, now watch, and even now, as an adult, it it just seems it's bizarre. Like like you were talking about the movies where it went up against Ghostbusters and the Karate Kid. Like it just seems so separate from what those movies are. And and I guess it was. I, I don't remember where uh, it was produced. Uh, it was like it's German, German. Yeah. German, right? It's it, German. It, and as so, an adult, bizarre. I see right. that now. So, right. So, right off the bat, credits, lots of German names. You can definitely feel the German influence in this movie. It's downright Teutonic. Definitely elements of the, the Bauhaus movement and like that stereotypical German stoicism. Makes perfect sense that this movie is German. Like Kindergarten, their objective is to break our spirit. This movie absolutely did that. Um, yeah. It's directed by uh, Wolfgang Peterson, like I said. Um, he also directed Enemy Mine, which is an absolute banger of an 80s. That's a great movie. Yep. A great movie. Um, he did Air Force One and uh, Perfect Storm. The film that he did directly before this was Das Boot. So it's a huge departure from Das to go from Das Boot to the never ending story. Jesus. I didn't you know I, I didn't know he directed Das Boot, but like I know Das Boot. I, I never realized that he did that it was the same guy and that he did that and then he did this. Yeah. So, this is quick, by the way, really quickly. Um there's something that, like the nihilism that's in Das Boot, and then also the literal nihilism that's in The Never Ending Story. I think mm. there's a connection there. So oh, yeah. one yeah. is like, you know, obviously about like, you know, the realism of what was happening during the World War and what soldiers were going through. And then the second one is sort of like, this is what could happen if people actually like, you know, lose their hope and joy in general hmm. and destroy a universe because of it. Yeah. So um movie starts off. Let's still let's let's take it from the top. Let's. Uh movie starts off nice, you know, cloud cover, the 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 theme song from uh Limnal. Uh, uh, <laughs> formerly from Kakajuju. That am I saying that right, Jim? Yes. Kakajuju. pioneer of the mullet. A uh, prototype for long shot, uh, the the X Men long shot. Which, by the way, nobody cares but me. That was the first comic book I ever bought. Was the long shot uh, miniseries. Nice. Um, but the very first thing you see, okay, so we have Bastion, and he's uh waking up from a nightmare. And then the next scene, we uh, see his dad, played by a uh, Gerald McRaney, aka Mister Delta Burke. And they're having the most depressing breakfast ever. I would have a shitty breakfast if no. my dad was major dad, too. So, dad <laughs> is making this nightmare cocktail. I want, okay. Did of, people do this? Did anybody do this? That what's that? Cocktail. Did anybody actually do that? That, of all the bizarre shit I, in this movie, that was the one thing I took away. Like, wait, what the fuck? I looked it no. up. I looked yeah. it up, and it's a it's an old piney hangover cure. Oh, what was which, it? I don't which, remember it. Which that says a lot, 
And Bastion is like spreading cold butter on like a piece of white bread. And it's like the Great Depression in their kitchen. And there's so much subtext in this scene. Well, what, the Even, dad, what the dad makes is he, he takes a blender, pours orange juice, and then drops a raw egg in it. And there's so much subtext in the scene. Like, first of all, the dad's hangover breakfast. But even the way that it's framed, it's this stark white kitchen. All of the action is happening in the lower left quadrant of the frame. And when you think about Peterson's last film before this was Das Boot, where, like, the space and the tight quarters <laughs> were, like, almost like another character in the film. It's very deliberate, the way that this is shot. Um, the kitchen is white. There's no children's art on the fridge, nothing decorative. And it really speaks to the home life these guys are trying to survive in. <coughs> Excuse me. Then Bastion confesses to his dad that he had another nightmare about his mother. And for me, it reminds me of, you know, that there's uh, this like a uh, literary story that's popularly credited to Hemingway, like the most, write the most depressing story you can in less than six words. Oh, and Hemingway wrote for sale baby shoes never worn there's so much in just that scene where these two people are existing in isolation in this stark depressing kitchen and he just says i, I had another dream about mom last night um it it's just and i mean it's i mean it's horribly saddening and it just gives you so much subtext that you need for the rest of the movie. That <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really quickly to add it, this is Wick again. Um, to add into that, like, that's probably one of the tightest scenes that I've seen in a movie where it's kind of like, you've just established how disparate this relationship is, like how different these two people are and how the connection is not there when at a time it really needs to be. So like that was like the desperately sad part for me. Yeah. And Bastion's dad, ever the model of sensitivity, is just like, I understand, son, but we got to get on with things. Absolutely zero sympathy or compassion to what this kid is going through. It's just telling him stiff upper lip it. And... um he then uses his son's confession as an opportunity to segue into all the things he's disappointed about. You got in trouble for drawing unicorns in your math book. You, you didn't join the swim team or, you know, there, he has these like litany of complaints. We're really just like neglecting his child's emotional well-being. So I, I have some thoughts on that, and and it maybe and maybe it's obvious, but I feel like the father had no hope. Everything yeah. was the the mother died, and and I don't want to say the mother's name because it, it'll, you know, I know we'll get there eventually. We'll get to that. But but it felt like the mother may have been the creative force, the creative energy, yes. why the kid was drawing unicorns, why the kid wanted fantasy so bad. And the father just isn't, yeah. you know, yeah. there's no, like you said, there's no art. There's nothing fun. There's no nothing. All the guy does is complain and, and probably drink quite a bit. Right. And, and so, <laughs> you know, the, the nothing 
could also be his father. Right. This kid you, you needs know, it, it's, that escapism. You know, at the very least, it's parallel. Yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to talk over you. I forget, did they ever establish how long his mom had been passed away? Not in I, the movie. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, remember catching that. I don't know if they do in the novel, um, but not in the movie, they don't. And um, David, I was going to actually ask the same question, where it's kind of like, one of the things that I'm just realizing now in this conversation is that we're not given a timeline about right. how long he's been allowed to recover from the tragedy of losing his mother. And I think that evidenced by like sort of like the father's general interaction with the child, like I would I would I would not be surprised if it wasn't close to the time that they were having this conversation. Right. I mean, that's that's definitely what I inferred from it, that that. They are a family in crisis, so to speak, without even really, you know, they, they are just not able to communicate with each other. They are not able to meet each other's emotional needs. And there is a, you know, a definite crisis happening there, um, which, you know, maybe explains Bastion, some of Bastion's weird behavior later in the movie. Um but yeah, that whole scene is just, it, it might be, as an adult watching it, it might be as depressing as our text drowning in the swamp. Might be, I don't know. So, um, so dad basically tells him to soldier on. Bastion uh, tries to make his way to school where he is encountered by a group of Dickensian bullies who throw him in a random dumpster he's covered in straw um and then he encounters fagin's gang again and that's where he escapes into uh coriander's bookstore so let's talk about coriander um coriander acts as though he's never met a child before but knowing what we know now coriander is basically trafficking children for fantasia is he not he's a groomer yeah yeah he's like oh no this book isn't for you you know you don't want any part of what's in this book and no, then he walks away a child yeah absolutely the reverse psychology it's like a tom sawyer whitewashing the fence um coriander's so, a weird so guy he uh he negs bastion like any good cult leader would, and baits him, tells him he's not ready for this epic book, and then takes off and lets Bastion steal it. Um, this is this is this is Wick again, and I always is like, I mean, again, does anyone else agree that obviously Coriander was Bastion at one point in the Neverending Story? I I do yeah. I do think that that is like a. Uh... Like a time travel kind of thing, or or not a time travel of kind of thing, but just that he was at least there's. It's a never it ending like story, there's... so at some point he oh, was okay. like that, a that parallel figure, sort of. Was... Yeah, so like at every like there's there's a point at which I would argue the story needs to be like you know reinvigorated, and he was one of the people that did that and held it on, and then was I think as Missy said probably like you know accurately trafficking children into the never ending story yeah, to make I mean, sure that's what he that, does. Yeah. Okay. No, no, but I, I think that and, I would and, argue, and yes. like, again, I would say that I think that he was a part of it. 
at the beginning in very much the way that when he was a child, he read the story and was put into it and moved through it. And then it was kind of like, this is something important. So there's a question. I mean, obviously there's an ethical question there where it's like, is it okay to basically like argue that a small child should be responsible for like the savior, like to be a savior of an entire like land, et cetera. But I'm going to stop there because it sort of intrudes on the next parts of the, the actual like narrative. Yeah. I mean, Coriander's not a good guy. I mean, I mean, I mean like maybe he's a harmless, you know, whatever, but um, you know, I, I did not read the novel. The book only said, like I said earlier, only is half of the novel, but from my understanding, um absolute power corrupts absolutely and bastion takes some dark turns in the later part of the book that is not covered in the movie and that might be why coriander is so bitter and selective and you know i don't know it, the the whole vibe of coriander's bookstore though that guy was shady he's definitely shady yeah and then uh bastion just steals the book um, is going through a lot, but that's still a shithead move to steal the book like that. He left a note. Um, it's legal. What's that? He left a note. It's cool. Yeah, be back later. Yeah. <laughs> but he's he's uh he's cutting school. He's not doing his homework. He's uh drawing unicorns. His his, his dad needs to uh you know maybe get him some therapy. Um, so Bastion uh. Makes his way to the school. He sees he's going to miss his math test. He decides to go. Now, this might be one of the most improbable parts of the movie is that he finds this random attic key in a broken box just there for any kid to grab to go into this weirdo attic. Um, the entire day, these kids have access to this random attic on school grounds, and no one goes up there for a smoke break or to cut class or anything. Like it's just weird, and the attic is crazy. At one point, we see there's like human remains up there. Um, there's like that wolf head on a stick. At one point, we see, and uh, I have no idea who the custodian is, but definitely a weirdo and should definitely be on some kind of list because on that note i'm sorry on that note could it be said that the stuff in the attic is helping to form the story that bastion is reading to psychologically to him especially considering like the wolf head or do you think maybe that's just coincidence i mean maybe the wolf head is is i don't you know i don't know that's a good point because gamork appears before he sees the wolf head but it's just weird. There's like skeletons in this attic. There's like a cage that he crawls into at one time and holds the door behind him. It's just very odd. What if the book is Wick. different? Every sorry, Wick, go ahead. Yeah, so like uh, yeah, this is like Wick. Um but yeah, I mean I think this like adds to sort of like what we'll probably discuss a little bit later about the meta elements of this. Where it's kind of like, you know, these things are incorporated into the real world as much as they're incorporated into the fantasy world. But from my perspective, the most disturbing thing about this is that there's a mattress in that attic. Yeah. And what is that for? Right. Why? Who is this school custodian? 
You know, like it's the, the mattress is an, uh, an excellent point. Yeah, why is there a mattress in this school attic that yeah, any kid right. has access to in a broken box that the keys labeled attic? So, like, an interesting bit of trivia about why things are weird in general is that the original German cut was even weirder and they couldn't release it in America. They had Spielberg edit it. Really? Yeah, and so he 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 made it. He did edits and things like that to make it, you know, more appealing to an American audience. So we're only getting what was deemed appropriate for Americans. For, uh, it was for what we could handle. Oh, I'd love to see a German cut. <laughs> I would. I would love it. I feel like there's a sequel like episode in the mix here, where we all review the German cut and are like. Oh. Oh no. What no have we no. Done? <laughs> what <laughs> my god. With with commentary track by Werner Herzog. <laughs> oh even better. I could listen to Werner Herzog read a ketchup bottle to me and just feel the despair. <laughs> sad beige commentary for sad beige children. <laughs> okay, so the attic is bananas. We can all agree that is just yeah. weird. Um, it's amazing that he's able to hide out all, up there all day without anyone stopping by. Um, it was the 80s. I would assume that kids in 5th and 6th grade needed a cigarette break at some point in time during the day, right? You know? <laughs> Smoke yeah. a couple of Virginia Slims up in that attic. Um, Benson and Hedges, I'm classy. Yeah, <laughs> so, some of mom's parliaments. Yeah, right. Marlboro Reds, yo. <laughs> so he starts reading, and we get to see Fantasia for the first time. Um, yeah, we meet the rock biter, uh, who's played by Alan Oppenheimer, who also played Gamork and Falcor, and he is the voice of. Skeletor. Skeletor. So yeah, I was gonna say I didn't know that was Skeletor playing the rock biter. Yeah. Um uh, and then I have played by Deep Roy, who might have the most impressive resume in this movie. He was in Star Wars and Star Trek. He played the Oompa Loompas in the Tim Burton Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um and um this is also where we first learn about the nothing. Um, as it's destroying the uh, far corners of Fantasia. And um, they all decide, hey, we're going to go uh, seek out the child empress for help. Um, I got to say, the the creatures, uh, it, the creature effects in this scene, the racing snail and the weird bat. I mean, the rock biter is a, is a favorite of mine, but the rest of them, I... Uh, they they just didn't look good to me. They uh, the effects do not hold up. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Dave, you're Dave, muted. Dave, you're on mute. Sorry, uh, I, I I still do like the Rock Biter. It's got a very yeah. vague Jim Henson Jr. Gorg type of quality yes. to it that I yeah, enjoy. I do like the Rock Biter. But everything, like the the snail and the bat, I don't know. They they were like nightmarish. More well, I get maybe that's the point. I don't. I don't know. Yeah, I didn't like them. 
Yeah. I, I, I don't I, think they were necessarily meant to be cute or appealing. I think they were just folks that lived in that world. Yeah, but I feel like, well, well I feel well, like, I feel like this movie, uh, when you, when you, when you think about what uh, Lucas Films was putting out and what the Henson Labs were putting out, it, it, they're just not good uh, puppetry. Uh, uh I, I get into a little bit more with Falcor, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I don't know, like it, it, it's the whole movie. I mean, obviously, I guess this is the point. It's like this surreal night, is surreal nightmare scape. But uh, that that scene just uh, I, I mean, I, I understand it was there to uh, give us a little bit of backstory, but it uh, it it felt a little short for me. I don't know how you guys felt about it. Yeah, well, they they crammed like the whole concept of Fantasia into a few minutes. Right. With yeah. the realm where every imaginary character ever exists. Right. Uh, even when they, you know, when they, when they get to the, the tower, uh, if you look closely, there are representations of C-3PO and Yoda. <laughs> like there's like, everybody's there. That council and- is an absolute nightmare collective it is like Cirque du Soleil meets the hills have eyes it is <laughs> there's something like radioactive in the groundwater in Fantasia it's uh, the the and the I the model for the ivory tower it looks like like a glowing plastic labia it looks like a sex toy it's so poorly rendered. <laughs> uh, and then also, so uh, yeah, Miss, like uh, this is quick again. Um, I get what you're saying that it feels like in many ways, like these characters are a little bit masky rather than like you know active in terms of right. like you know their like their ability. But I still liked them because they were pretty interesting, different. Like, they were sort of like, these are things that are going to come out of your dreams. And I think that's the point of, like, yeah, you know, the out of my nightmare. Of yeah, um, I got the emotion out of the giant head guys. Yes, yeah. the giant head. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but also, it's sort of like what I regretted seeing specifically was when you read the book, I mean, the ivory tower is an entire city, you know? Yeah, so, here it's just like a, I don't know what it yeah. was. All that you see is like basically like a platform at the top of like a giant gleaming thing. Yeah. Um. A model. And like that gleaming thing in the book is very much, you know, an entire city and populated by people, and you know they're living their individual lives, etc. So, not seeing that, I was like, this feels like a budget cut. It definitely felt like a budget cut. Like, to, like even the multi-headed big. I mean, like, like you said, a lot of the character characters are stationary their their faces aren't moving they're just like you know um they're mad they look like, they look they like look parade like, characters yes they look like parade characters yeah. and then there's like random elephants it's it's just a weird collection that feels well, very very thrown together look at the cantina in a new hope there's some of that bullshit as well yeah, mm. that's true that's true, but the new hope is, you know, a little bit older. It gets a little bit more grace with that. But yes, no, you're right. 
Um, yeah, I was I was going to point to the cantina as well, and I feel like uh, the forgiveness that may be given is the fact that they really tried to create a variety of characters that were there. It seemed that they were coming from very, very different places and spaces in Fantasia. And so that's sort of like what the cantina was, but the cantina, I would say, was filled with like characters that were a lot more active they it wasn't masky right. they weren't the just standing was. around listening to carry on with his dorsal fin head giving a worst case scenario it, it was it was a kids movie in west germany in the early 80s let's cut them some slack okay all right all also right. true fair fair fair, fair. We'll, we'll give them, we're, we're grading them on a german curve that's fair the greatest children's movie to ever come out of uh, Cold War Germany. <laughs> you're right. You're right. It that, deserves that more grace. You're right. You're right. Um, so here, like I said, we're introduced to Carry On, and he's telling us uh, that nothing is consuming all of Fantasia. And the only hope is that one of the plains people who hunt the purple buffalo, the warrior Atreyu. And when Atreyu appears, Carry On's like, a total jerk to him um and as far as i can see atreo's the only person in this dr caligari collective of nightmares that doesn't have multiple faces um this weird assemblage of mutants and miscreants so maybe carrion should cut atreo some slack here yeah it's the ivory tower of dr moreau yeah right yeah <laughs> good yeah e excellent yes um and Carrion's basically like, Atreo's like, yeah, let's let's do this. And Carrion's like, okay, you can't take any friends or any weapons. Just take this uh, this uh, tacky necklace and uh, go find it. It's all super vague. Like, I, I resent a little bit that they don't give Atreyu a little bit more guidance on this planetary yeah. saving mission. So not only do they not give him guidance, but they're like, you need to leave all your weapons behind. You can't talk to anyone. Yeah. You must go alone. It's kind of yeah. like, and, and we're also basically we're going hindering you at every step yeah. of this mission. And obviously because, you know, it's later related to exactly what the storyline is. And that needs to be for like this mission to be like successful. But at the beginning, it's kind of like, Oh, you're a child. Um, okay, go save like our entire world. Uh, leave everything that you need to actually do so right here, and then go. Yeah, enjoy. Yeah, enjoy. Mm -hmm. well, it's, it's relatable as a child. You have this authority figure dressing him down, and then and then putting feeling like something that is the weight of the world on your shoulders yeah and then immediately stripping him of all of his power right yeah yeah and and jim uh, again it's not like they were leaving him with the weight of the world on his shoulders <laughs> they literally were doing so yeah everyone's gonna die kid unless you do something we can't tell you exactly what it is we need you to do understand that but you need to do something or we're all gonna die all right good luck and also you. no weapons also, no weapons. Also, don't have fun. Don't talk to anyone. No friends. This is How not a not send out a whole squad of guys to go try yeah. and sort this out. Yeah, 
I, I, who set the rules? Right. Who set the rules for this? They seem a lot of the quote unquote rules in this movie seem very unfair. Um, to Atreyu, to Bastion, to everyone. Yeah, you're in the um, world of imagination. Imagine a lightsaber. Let's go. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Makes well, it's German imagination. So I, I've seen the Germans do very horrible things by just imagining them. Right. Fair point. So also beginning his quest at this time was Gamork, the wolf, the uh trying to think of what you would call him, the servant of the nothing. Um and the special effects on Gamork not good. Just like these like glowing green eyes. Scared the shit out of me when I was a kid though. But yeah, like I still find it impressive when I consider how old it is. It's like uh sort of as a tangent when you look at the starship from the last Starfighter, it still looks pretty good when you consider how old it is. So like I think the puppetry for Gmork is actually for a movie that came out in nineteen eighty four pretty good, but they just they could only make the face work. Yeah. There's yeah. There's a lot of that through the movie, but um I, I'm gonna like uh I'm gonna give them some grace, like we discussed earlier, that it was uh children's movie coming out of the Cold War Iron Curtain. Um and we get lots of them from there, lots of wide shots of a boy and his horse in a surreal landscape, uh and forever being followed by those glowing animatronic eyes. So guys, now we are in the thick of it. Now we are going to let's talk about the swamp of sadness. We're gonna talk about oh. it because we have to. Uh, it's the scene more than anything else that people talk I'm, about. I'm buckling up. The absolute horror of Artex <laughs> drowning in the swamp of sadness. And I was uh discussing this in the in a uh Facebook chat for the podcast. One of the things that makes us so horrific is how prolonged it is. The scene of Artex drowning is two minutes and 19 seconds long. So I did a little research, and these are some historical events that transpired in less time than it took for Artex to drown in the Swamp of Sadness. Okay. The Challenger explosion occurred 73 seconds after takeoff. Again, we had to watch that's Arctic Drown for two minutes. That's and not even the whole. That's not even the whole explosion. A right. minute and change was everything going perfectly fine. Right. <laughs> Secretariat won the Kentucky Derby in one minute and fifty nine seconds. Yet we still had to watch Arctic Drown in the Swamp of Sadness. Its legs weren't stuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fast horse versus stuck horse. Guys. Uh, yeah. Mike Tyson knocked out Michael Sphinx in 91 seconds. Oh, we're like, talking about naked Sphinxes soon. Yeah, right. The gunfight at the OK Corral lasted less than one minute. And just for reference, this is the last thing I'm going to throw out there. The average Oscar speech takes less than a minute. All of those things occurred in less time than we had to view Artex drowning in the swamp of sadness. Somebody should have played it off. <laughs> Start doing some silly music as the horse goes under. Yeah. 
Okay, gotta get out of here, Artax. Come on, you're taking too long. for this scene. Your horse is dead. How? So, how long was that scene? Two minutes and what? Two minutes and nineteen seconds. Christ, it seems interminable. It just—it always felt like it just goes on forever. Like you're just watching a kid crying as his horse drowns, begging, begging the horse, "Please, you're gonna die." It's like the non-comedic version of that scene in Austin Powers where he runs over Michael McDonald with with the with the yeah. uh, steamroller. Yes, but if it was not played for laughs, it's it's the same like long drawn out inevitable death. It just goes on forever, and um, you know, really, what this scene is about is an allegory for depression and how when you get depressed you get bogged down you're not able to pull yourself out of it even if people are like come on you you got to keep moving you just don't have the headspace to do it which and then there's a parallel between uh atreyu trying to pull artex out of the swamp of sadness and bastion trying to strong arm i mean bastion's father trying to strong arm him out of his depression Mm -hmm. um I mean that's part of the reason why it's it's so pow- such a powerful scene. Like it, it's sad, it's traumatic, it's mm. prolonged. Um, and the fact that the swamps to pull you down, you have to surrender to that sadness. So I mean, you could vaguely say it was an allegory for suicide because Artax yes. effect effectively is surrendering to his sadness and letting himself die. It's also blaming the victim. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, this, I mean this, kind of, yeah. Right. Or a right. horse. We just, <laughs> just really to do horse things. The horse is uh, like, you you brought me here. Right. Atreyu, you you brought me into this swamp, and now you're gonna yell at me like I'm doing something wrong. If if that yeah, horse and, and, could talk, his <clears throat> last words would be, This was your fucking idea. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, this is where I can sort of like just speak to what you were talking about earlier. Rewatching it, I was like, it's 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 fascinating to see how Atreyu goes through basically all of the different tactics to try to, like, get someone out of that position where it's like, like, you know, I don't understand what you're doing. And then it's like, oh, I understand you're just tired. Let me pull you out of this. And then yelling and being like, no, 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 you have to, like, get yourself together and get yourself out of this. And then at the end, I like, as I've, like, I've mentioned, um, the most disturbing part for me is that from, like, from, like, the childhood perspective was the fact that Artax's death was from Artax's perspective. Yes. Where you're just, like, he's sinking into the swamp and watching... Probably the person that he loves, like, yes. and then just being. And the camera angle gets lower and lower and lower. It is so dark. Oh, and, 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 I wonder what the horse was upset about, like what his problem was. Probably because he boats. followed that asshole into the swamp. It's like, really? Yeah, he's like, he's like, really? We have no game plan here. Um, you're dragging me through the swamp. <laughs> Um, this is this seems like a bad idea, Atreyu. Please let's turn around. Mike talks about how 
Atreyu goes through all the emotions in that time, like first, like I'll help you, and then pleading. And I'm gonna say again, he had two minutes and nineteen seconds <laughs> to run that gamut of emotions to get to that place. He had two minutes and nineteen seconds to try anything. Um, it's. I think it's and he, and might... like, and he tried everything. That was the thing. Like, that's not a lot of time. And trying everything within that time is, I think, also part of the trauma that yeah. we went through, where it's sort of like you couldn't have done anything else, and yet it still failed. Yeah. yeah and failed. so that's like, I feel like that's also like, you know, what sort of multiplies what we went through during that scene. It's kind of like, you know, no, 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 no. There's nothing that you could have done. However, you still feel responsible for what happened. I feel like if you were to take a poll of 10 Gen Xers and were to say to them, what is the most traumatic scene from a movie, in your opinion? I think eight of them would say the death of our cat. You might get a couple of people easily eight, easily. You might get a couple of people saying the bees and my girl, maybe. The blue. That's a that's bird. a good one. What's that? The blue big bird. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's a good one too. But yeah, I'm I'm I would say either Thomas J would would get a couple, but definitely our tax would. I would think our tax is the one commanding that really, lead. Really scarred us when we were kids that scene and what was shocking to me in this rewatch was how quickly out of the gate they did it relatively early in the movie yeah it's like oh cool he has a horse cool yeah I yeah un unfortunately for you horses are expensive to have in movies <laughs> i heard that they tried to gift the horse to uh Noah Hathaway is that his name who played it right yeah uh -huh. they tried to gift it to him but like they couldn't get it out of Germany like there were all these like neutered like he needed to be neutered he needed to be like whatever the some kind of porn the horse though <laughs> I don't know I don't, that's not a gift what's the alternative what happened to him if Noah didn't take him in a West German glue factory <laughs> I, I, you know, that's just me. That's that's the same as giving somebody a puppy for Christmas. That's not a gift. Yeah, <laughs> it's just been dark in a whole new real world way. Yeah, that, <laughs> was, yeah that's not a gift. It's an obligation. Thanks for being in this movie, kid. Here's a, uh, thanks for being in this movie, kid. Here's here's a literally a thousand pound responsibility that you're gonna have for the next 20, 25 years. He also read. A little off topic from, from this, but I also read that Noah Hathaway was... I hope I'm getting his name right. No, that, um, that's right. He was injured several times in the production of the movie because Wolfgang Peterson insisted on him doing all of his own stunts. And he almost... He got sucked under. They had like an elevator platform in the Swamp of Sadness... I think to lower our tax and he got sucked under and like his leg was, I mean, like it was seriously, but in the end, when he, the final scene with Gamork, um, they only did one take because he got so badly injured while filming that scene. So there was just a lot about this movie that was super reckless. He almost lost an eye. Yeah. <laughs> 
So, so it's not just the horse going to the glue factory. Yeah, no, no. they got to dispose of a child actor too. And right, this was before the whole thing with the Tales of the Dark Side movie happened, right? With that, uh, with that uh, helicopter thing. Uh, that, was, that was the Twilight. That is also a. Um, I'm blanking on his name now. Uh, Vic Morrow. No, the guy who right. played the kid who played Bastion. Oh. He was in that Twilight Zone movie. Was he? Yeah, he played uh, Barrett Oliver. He played uh, um, the kid who anything he wished for came true. And he lived in that surreal cartoony house. Oh, get out of here. Yeah, that's Barrett Oliver. Huh. Weird. But yeah, I mean... Like what year did that happen? Because that was that whole thing with the with Victor Morrow and the the plane crash or the helicopter crash and the two kids um, died. When yeah, the Twilight Zone movie. Yeah, because I'm that, trying that to think. Is Barrett really Oliver went... was Barrett Oliver did like three Spielberg related projects. He did the Twilight Zone, he did Cocoon, and he did this. Yeah, because I know that well, was really when they started reevaluating uh, on set safety regulations with child actors because of right that, well because, because yeah, um, yeah Tw- twilight zone the movie was came out in 83 so the year before this yeah yeah but this might have actually been filmed before yeah. that well no this probably not because the film came again, out in 83. yeah this was again filmed in uh pre-hasselhoff west germany <laughs> um, in munich the same city where they killed all those kids in willy wonka's chocolate factory so yeah <laughs> for killing kids in movies. I like that as a timeline marker pre Hasselhoff Germany. Oh, all the textbooks now. That's what it that's what it is. It's PH. So to clear, like really quickly to clarify, it looks like Barrett Oliver was in the Twilight Zone, the new television series. That oh, he wasn't out. in the movie? And he wasn't in the movie. Oh, I thought he was in the I thought he I thought he played the kid that anything he wished for came true. No, he did not. No. Okay, I'm sorry. I stand corrected. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> Everybody, come on. The never-ending story. Now I have to figure out who that kid is. Reach the sun. The flood of fantasy. Okay. So, our text is dead. Uh, we're on our way to meet Morla the Nihilist Turtle with a sinus infection. <laughs> and, uh, Morla's spending way too much time in the Swamp of Sadness because she, Homegirl, is depressed. She is, uh, you know, she, nothing matters. She's been alone for a thousand years. Uh, she kind of hopes the nothing comes because the nothing would be something. Um, and uh, it's uh, emblematic of the sad, the depression and the sadness that the uh, swamp represents. But uh, Moira's uh, apathy uh, becomes a philosophical challenge to Atreyu and his ultimate mission because... The next time we see him, he is almost drowning in the swamp of sadness, um, with Gamork still hot on his tail, um, and 
you know, he's overcome with his defeatist mentality. He sees no point. He doesn't know what he's going to do. And then uh, that's when uh, Falcor swoops in the luck dragon. Uh, and guys, I am uh, just going to say it. I remember Falcor being better when I was a kid. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. I even thought, I, I think I thought that he was cute. And I feel like they remastered this movie at some point and made Falcor shittier. Um, they did a reverse episode one yeah. uh, Yoda remaster. I don't remember <laughs> those pink scales on his skin. You know what they reminded me of? They reminded me of um, when you see uh, pictures on the internet of like stray dogs that wander into like a nest of ticks. And <laughs> have, that's what his scales look like. Yes. It, um, it, it's. Um, he looks like he has a fungal skin condition um, that's causing his fur to fall out like he has mange. Um, warning to anyone with trypophobia or tryptophobia, this scene might be more horrific for you than Artax drowning in the Swamp of Sadness. His skin is gross. It's like a weird mix of scales and fur. It's like some kind of a snake with like a fucking cocker spaniel head like it's it's very bizarre it's very bizarre he's you know uh the motion capture isn't great um i just i remembered him being endearing and i was shocked at how gross he was um, I, I don't remember him being endearing but i i, I always remember his eyes being very off-putting because they, yeah. they just I mean, they. I know they were plastic, but they looked plastic. There was nothing alive about the puppet. Yeah. Worse, though, I think than anything, is Falcor comes off like a total creep in this scene. He's like the older guy that your friends hang out with in high school because they always have weed and will, like, buy you beer. But then, like, when they get a few in them, they get, like, a little too flirty. The guy who always wants a hug. You know, like the first words out of Falcor's mouth, he's got like this really creepy affect. Of, like, uh, Atreyu wakes up, uh, he's, you know, his clothes are clean, his wounds are dressed, he's under Falcor's arm, and he's trying to dip like he's just had a regrettable one night stand. And the first words out of Falcor's mouth are, leaving so soon? With those like weird bedroom eyes. And he's like, hmm. I like children. He's a total creep. And then he winks at Atreyu. It's and and there's the whole ear scratch where that feels good. It's he's he's creepy as fuck. Yeah, man. he's he's a he's like this pink psoriatic creep moaning about how good the little boy scratches to his ear feels. Um yeah, not impressed with Falcor. You guys, uh, any other input on Falcor? I mean, that's sort of where I'm at with it, too. Cause, like, this was the first time I'd watched it since I was 10. Uh-huh. So going back and re-watching it after such a long time, and I don't think it was intentional. I think it was just to make him seem like, seem like, a, almost like a Santa Claus type figure. 
but he comes across more like Herbert the pervert from Family Guy. Yeah, no, he is a <laughs> He is a Leaving so soon? Leaving so soon? And he admits that he trafficked a Treyu 9,891 miles because um, I'm a weird luck dragon and I like to argue semantics. Ambassador says, you brought me 10,000 miles. And I said, no. 9,891 miles. He, he was a creep. Um, so, I'm, I'm, can I come down? This is Wick. Um, can I come down on the Falcor side of things on this okay. front? I just always viewed him as a puppy. You like some weird, be... like, you know, like, you know, a puppy that lived forever. And I'm kind of yeah. like, okay, like that I actually want in my life. Wick, Wick if you want to go on record being a Falcor apologist. I'll let you. <laughs> However, I'm going. I'm I'm going full on record. I understand the implications. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> but I do feel like, like that was just like you know, a giant fantasy Thanks, version really? of a puppy for me. So well, like I mean, an eternal puppy. Exactly. With a never-ending puppy and a bad skin condition. He's like a dragon from like the the calendars that they sell at the Chinese restaurant, but with the head of a Bichon Frieza. Exactly. I'm and I'm not mad at that. I will I will support that. Missy again. You know what? I, I think I'm coming over to Wick side on this. <laughs> I, I do like the idea of an eternal puppy. Mm-hmm. Not that puppy. No, not him. <laughs> but I like the concept and I like what Wick is saying. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's how I used to view him. I watched this movie um, with my 15-year-old, and it was her first time seeing it. We never let her see it because of the. I thought she'd be too scarred from the Arctic scene. And she was completely weirded out by Falcon. Um, and she was like, this dude is a creep. And I was like, yeah, you're right. He is a creep. That's good. Uh, that's good. So when she's in the world, stay away from Falcors. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, I mean, if we want to, if we want to, like, you know, approach Falcor from a dude perspective, yeah, none of that is okay. Yeah. I approach him from like the puppy perspective, puppy where it's sort of like, you know, yeah, where... scratch my ear and let's move forward. Okay. All right. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, like, you know what? If That's you think of him like a dog, he's fine. But like, if you meet him at the bar, keep, make sure you keep your drink covered. Yeah, yeah. No, put put your coaster over your drink and don't let it out of your sight. Yeah. He is uh he's a lot. Um, and then we see uh these what are they? Are they gnomes, these Urgul and Engiwak that that uh he goes to the ones that actually dress as ones because at first I was like, I, I didn't remember these like weird older I don't know, are they gnomes or they elves? I don't know what they are. Um, they're like the extremely more jarring version of Miracle Max and his wife. Yes, uh, that's that's exactly yeah. what I have in my notes. He's a poor man version of the couple from The Princess Bride. Yeah, I think I confused them as a kid. Like, yeah, they're very like. I had no memory of them. They, you know, like, and they each have like these fantastical, like, uh, 
machines that are like uh, low technology, but big science. Uh, they, they don't really give him a lot of guidance. They don't really give him a lot of... Uh, there's there's not much going on with that scene. I didn't even really take a lot of notes for it because it was just it felt like a, a throwaway. He gets to look. He gets his first look at the at the Sphinx. Um, but other than that, that's right. Yeah. So going. Than- so I'll 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 wait for the Sphinx. But also, it's kind of like first of all, what kind of terrible codependent relationship are they in? Like <laughs> because it's just like. Whenever they talk to each other, it's just sort of like, this is what's wrong with you. It's like, no, this is this is what's wrong with you. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, uh, you guys have been together for what's probably hundreds of years. Right. Millennia. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's like and my parents. How you still interact with each thing. other. <laughs> and what kind of like, you know, what sort of emotions are you feeding off of? Like trying to relate to each other. Um, so well, they're in the middle of nowhere. Can you imagine how boring it is for them that they just have? I each can't, other? I mean, I can't because they didn't have cell phones. So, right. what's have, up yeah. with that? Um, but then I mean, it was a pre Hasselhoff Germany, of course, they didn't have cell phones, yeah. But then again, now we're getting to the point where this is maybe the first time that I saw boobs. Okay, let's talk about the Sphinx. The Sphinx. Mm-hmm was the thing that offended the writer Michael Ende the most. That was what made him want his name taken off the movie was the well-endowed Sphinx. Um and uh that shot lasers. Um any so it was your first exposure to boobs. Anyone else have anything they want to add about I, the Sphinx? I, I, it was it was one of my thing. first, yeah. Second and second and third. And fourth, there's two of them. Yeah, <laughs> it, it was a it was a very I, I do remember it being a very strange moment for me as a kid. Like what? It's like this is this is okay and weird. That's yeah. That is so. So for all four of you, it was some of your first exposure to boobs. That Between is, that and uh, Revenge of the Nerds, yeah. That is so... that. And the, the gods must be crazy. I think actually. Well, that is so bizarre. I would have never thought that that was such like a cultural thing that first exposure to boobs with the Sphinx and the never ending story. Yeah. So, I mean, so this is, this is like quick again. And then I'm kind of like, so this is probably the first time that I really remembered boobs. Okay. Because <laughs> they were big golden boobs. Right. Like that were, were. Um, attached to. Uh, giant sphinxes that murdered everyone that came between them. So, I mean, that's a memorable moment. That's, I mean, that's something that I think being so many of your first exposure and the fact that they were lethal breasts, there's probably a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Women have been killing me with glances my whole life. <laughs> Excuse me. Probably to... a lot that you guys need to unpack with that. I have to write something down for my next therapy session. <laughs> right. And then the hot lady with the no, boobs you, you stared think, at me and I I'm, died. You think I'm kidding, but I'm writing it down. <laughs> so we can vouch he is, in fact, writing it. We're all in the Zoom chat together if you're listening. He does you have guys, a pen and paper out right now. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and I will say, yes. like, guys, literally writing this down. He's writing it down. 
I, I, yeah, no, here you go. Sphinx yeah. boobies. Sphinx boobies. Yeah. But also, like, the weird part is, is that they were, like, in, like, you know, the first, like, gate, I think they, that's how yeah. they refer to it as. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, they're fully exposed, but then the Southern Oracle gets to have, you know, some sort of, like, corset going on. It's either the first gate or second base. <laughs> and I'm like, this is like, this is what we get to first. That's first. Oh, God. Right. So I feel like we uncovered something very interesting culturally that needs to be analyzed here with this. But okay, we'll move on to uh, the second gate, the mirror gate, where you must face your true self. Uh, when confronted with their true selves, most ran, men run away screaming. This is... I, I, I don't have a lot to say about the gates. I've... Um, this I mean, is where we find out that Atreyu was a self-insert character, so hashtag Atreyu was a Mary Sue. Okay. Um, I, I don't... I don't you want to explain that a little bit more, Dave? Well, so... Like... If you're familiar, like, with the Star Trek uh, fanfic that coined the term Mary Sue. So we're not talking about the way incels use the term Mary Sue here, by the way. Okay. Um, so the character in that Star Trek fanfic was named Mary Sue. And she was the self-insert character for the woman who wrote the fanfic. So... Like the whole thing about that was she was the most capable person out of the crew. She was able to do everything. Like she was a jack of all trades. And she was that self-insert character. So that particular gate, the mirror gate, Atreyu looks into the mirror and he and Bastion see each other. So this is that the that point where they realize that they're intertwined. Okay. And you could reflect on that and think of that as Bastion and Atreyu realizing that Atreyu is Bastion's self-insert into this story. He he is okay. Bastion's avatar oh, in, okay. this, That's very in this world. Thank you for that, Dave. That's very interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is like the point in the movie where everything's going to hell in Fantasia. Um, and it seems like the, the destruction of Fantasia seems to take a really long time. Like, once it gets, you know, like, uh, um, uh, uh, Atreyu and Falcor, Atreyu falls off Falcor, and the storm um, is picking up in Bastion's world. We see him back at the serial killer lair. I'm pretty sure that's when the wolf head appears. Um, the two worlds are crossing over each other. Uh, the real world and the world of Fantasia. Um, Falcor and Atreyu are separated. And then um, Atreyu washes up on the shore. And he's, he, this is where Atreyu meets the rock biter. This scene is uh, very important. It's something I want to discuss later. But uh, just to recap... Uh, He's like so sad that these look like good strong hands, don't they? I always thought that they were, you know. And he's like lamenting because we find out that he dropped the night hob and the racing snail. They're all gone. Um. Uh, the nothing will be there in a minute. 
Uh, the Rockbiter has given up, lamenting his hands, crippled by his failure. Um, and uh, it's a it's a really heavy scene in the movie, I think. Um, a, a real like a, another another emotional gut punch in the in the viewing that uh, you know Rockbiter just feels this deep uh, sense of failure. Yeah, that it's it's especially for a children's movie. That particular monologue is really depressing, and it's a. I mean, it's a German movie, so of course, but there's a lot of pathos in that monologue. Yeah, yeah there is, and uh, and like I said, I'm gonna reference that a little bit later. But I'm you know trying to get through uh, the plot. Uh, Atreyu uh, sees uh, the prophecy with Carrion. He sees his cave paintings of Artax and the Swamp of Sadness. And his quest with Sphinx and Falcor. And then uh this is when he has his uh showdown with Gamork. And and there's a lot of intense dialogue happening here too. Um it, Fantasia's dying uh because people are losing their hope and forgetting their dreams, and the nothing is the emptiness that is left behind because their despair is destroying the world. And, uh, you know, Gamork reveals that he's a servant of the nothing. What I don't understand is uh, Gamork is like a, a, a canine, correct? He's like a wolf. Wow. How does he not recognize or be able to identify Atreyu by smell? Because um, he seems shocked when Atreyu's like, you know, I'm Atreyu. Uh, and they have that fight, and it's super anticlimactic in the movie and i think that that is because um noah hathaway was so badly injured when filming it the first time that they just took what they had and that was that um yeah so uh i don't know if you guys have anything to add to the uh, whole fight was lame but he was actually fighting an animatronic wolf so yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he was injured fighting an animatronic wolf. So, well, I mean, it kind of seemed like at the end they just had like a like a stuffed wolf that they threw at him for him to stab, because like it literally just like lands on him and they tumble to the ground, and then he's got like a piece of I, I couldn't remember if it was like flint or something that he stuck into the wolf. Yeah, it was like a piece like, of rock um, or something. It's like uh, with a. Uh... On Saturday Night Live, when they used to have Toonses, the driving cat, attack people. And it was just like, they would throw a stuffed animal. That's kind of what it was like. Um, yeah, so... Uh, so uh, to comment on this also, I feel like... For me, there's a bigger conversation. Like, And we don't... Like, we're not going to have it right now. But I would like... Why the Gamork? Like... For the movie, at the very least, I understand that it was like in the novel, but I'm like, I I don't really see why that character was necessary to push the actual narrative, because it seems like, you know, a thing that's consuming your entire world is enough than having a wolf that's sort of like, let me just make sure that like one person is down while I do this. Well. Yeah, he was like the I, Herald I, of Galactus, I think, but like not cool. 
And like I was saying, Galactus is already here. <laughs> so it's kind of he like. He has been tracking Atreyu all throughout Fantasia, yet he doesn't recognize him when it's when he's in front of him. So I'm sure there there's some, you know, philosophical something there that I, I, I'm missing, but I, it's, you're right, Wink. It's, it was relatable if you go back to the source material. Because you know German Germanic folklore, there's there are wolves. Uh, wolves wolves yes. used to eat children. Yes, that was like a regular thing. Yeah. All right. So, um, maybe it doesn't have good eyesight. I mean, is it? Did they say specific? <laughs> no, I'm serious. Though, but because maybe those green eyes are cataracts. It could be. Did they ever specifically say that Gamort was a wolf? Um, I don't know. Said specifically whether or not, but like again, I feel like it's kind of there is something as Missy had said before that is anticlimactic when it's like you know the character of Atreyu saying like "Come for me, Gamork, I am Atreyu," where it's yeah. sort of like he has to learn it from his intended victim when he's apparently a servant of an immense like immensely powerful force and so i was just like i've always like wondered why is this here right now what is he tracking through fantasia i mean uh, allegedly he's tracking a trail is he tracking his scent is he tracking his actual tracks like footprints is he tracking for him not to know that that's a trail in front of him after he has literally followed him across Fantasia is just bizarre. Um, Atreyu. But... Atreyu is Bastion. Bastion's the reader. He's he's that realm's creator. So the nothing is trying to find the creator. Okay. What if Gamort was really tracking Bastion without realizing... Bastion and Atreyu are kind of the same. Yeah, I mean, when when you get into the meta of this movie, it's it's a lot. I mean, we will get into it, but um, so Fantasia explodes. Falcor is surprisingly chill about Fantasia exploding. Um, the Orn will guide them in their back pithy demented teacups ride that is the ivory tower, and they again they drag Falcor out he's just laying there like a waifu pillow um, just this hulking corpse that makes you uncomfortable <laughs> to look at I mean seriously like that's, he's just like laying there um, and this is where we get to meet the childlike or as I like to refer to her now as the gaslighting empress this scene with the empress made me so angry the first words out of her mouth is <laughs> yeah, yeah. first thing she, she asks is why do you look so sad bitch have you not been aware of what's going on our text died the planet blew up destroying everything I've ever known and loved I've been stalked by this wolf Gamork and you're going to ask me why I'm so sad? Are you kidding me? 
Um, and uh, she informs him that he brought the Earthling child that can save them all. And I mean, she basically admits, I put you through all of this to get the attention of another dude. And, uh, yeah, I just zero accountability from the Empress, zero, uh, um, you know, just not happy with her. Um, any, any other thoughts uh, you guys have on the Empress? I, um, she just seemed like such a non-character. I mean, I, 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 I understand what you, what you're saying about her just kind of gaslighting everybody, but she, you know, she's the empress. She's supposed to be the one in charge. She has zero leadership. She just goes, "Oh yeah, everything was destroyed. Why are you so bummed out? Look, why, why are you so? Why are you so sad? There's a grain of sand. Here's a grain right. of sand. Right. You do the work. You make the wishes. You put it back together. I have to go and empress right. I, somewhere. Yeah." It's it's so it's in the scene where um she's saying that uh again, this is where it gets super super meta where as though it hasn't already been but she tells Atreyu that uh just as he Bastion is sharing all of your Atreyu's adventures, others, us, the viewers, are sharing his bastions. I know that's confusing. Basically, saying that uh, the same way that Bastion has been following Atreyu, we've been following Bastion. We're all in this together, um, which creates this crazy Escher Drost effect um, on our reality as the viewers. Um, and uh, Bastion is sitting in a creepy serial killer attic in disbelief. But honestly, Coriander told him that this is what was up and this is what was going to happen. Uh, well, Coriander warned him he wasn't ready for this. Um, so this is where we get into the Empress says that uh, she needs a new name um, and to call it out. And things are going crazy in the uh, serial killer attic. Um, and despite the fact that uh, he could not pry himself away from this book, and the book is now calling him out by name, Bastion hesitates. Uh, screaming at the literal audience, breaking the fourth wall. He needs to keep his feet on the ground. I think uh, at this point it's the fifth wall. Right. Okay. Okay. Good point. <laughs> um, I would argue that hiding in the serial killer attic overnight is not keeping his feet remotely on the ground. Um, and now the atrialic empress is screaming at him to save it. Save us, and he's screaming back at the audience, I will do what I dream. And then he opens the window and he yells, <laughs> You can't tell what he is saying. Um now we are led to believe that he's gonna say his mother's name. Even earlier in the movie, when the Empress, when it's mentioned that the Empress needs a name, Bastion laments that his mother had a beautiful name. I rewatched this scene a million times as a kid, trying to figure out what he was saying, and I could never tell. It's completely indecipherable, and it was only 
on the internet 20 years later that I learned that he allegedly said Moonchild. Um, I don't think Gerald McRaney looks like the type of guy who would marry someone named Moonchild, but he does. Um, Maybe she's wild. You don't know. <laughs> um, but there are some things uh, that are done pretty deliberately. Um, so in the movie, this is the only part of the movie that does not have subtitles. Um, there is a strobe effect on Bastion, and like I said, the name that he yells is completely unintelligible. And you would think that they would. Um, it's it's uh it's like the briefcase in Pulp Fiction. It's a deliberately vague plot device. Um, it almost sounds like he's reading C plus plus code as part of the script. So I did a little deep dive on this, and um. Because uh, Wolfgang Peterson has gone on the record as saying he is not saying his mother's name. Um, and in the original book, uh, the Empress's new name is Modenkind. Um, a formative uh, German translation between Moonchild and Child of the Moon in English. Um, and is he giving the Empress this name um, because um, this name, but the moon doesn't shine. It reflects its own light off the sun. And similarly, the childlike Empress projects the fantasies of children such as Bastion, but cannot recreate or invent them on her own. She needs them. So is that why he's giving her the name? moon child child of the moon there's also a lot of uh i i went down this weird reddit rabbit hole about the significance of moon child um in the writings of alistair crowley um oh yeah and and they possessed items relating to the thelma i, I think i'm saying that right thelma religious order that crowley started and he, Crowley published a book called Moonchild about a war between black and white mages and a woman being impregnated with an ethereal being called the Moonchild. Um, it's not the only connection in the never-ending story between the writings of Crowley. Um, both the Is book there a deleted scene where W.B. Yeats kicks Alistair Crowley down a flight of stairs? <laughs> no. But uh, in the book and movie versions of the never-ending story feature the Orin, the mystical medallion that in the book grants the wearer power to become the main character. Um, this item inscribed, depending on the English translation, with do what you wish or find your true will. And one of the central themes of the Thelema is do what thou will. Um, so... People assume that he's saying Moonchild because of the book, but Wolfgang Peterson has said, no, that's uh, not Bastion's mother's name. Um, like I said, it's a deliberately vague plot device. Um, and also emblematic of the nothing, the nothing is lack of creativity and apathy towards the make-believe. Um, it's the absence of something. And in this case, uh, creativity and imagination um so the movie forces you to use your imagination 
um, by not telling you what name he's yelling, you as the viewer are forced to kind of fill in that blank and therefore brings you into the story as well, which is another meta aspect of it, which might have been why it was intentionally so vague. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Moonchild was not his mother's name, I think. That's what Wolfgang Peterson has said. And I think that... I think that that's an element that was lost somewhere in translation. I mean, if we were meant to fill in our own name or what we think the name should be, I mean, that's a that's a big fail because we we all everybody I know that knows this movie spent pretty much their whole childhood trying to figure out what the fuck he said. Right, exactly. rewinding it. Yeah, rewinding it, pausing it, rewinding it. Yeah, absolutely. Um. So does he say Moonchild? Does he not say Moonchild? I, I don't know. Um, I think that it's, like I said, deliberately left vague for us, the audience, to fill in. Um, but it, it doesn't seem to matter. Fantasia's destroyed anyway. And like you said, guy, he's given the grain of sand. This is the vast empire. And she says, you know, this is on you now. You restart us with your fantasy, your dream. He didn't ask for that. I mean, I have a feeling that... Uh, he ran away, he cut school, he spent the night in the attic. Uh, his dad is Gerald McRaney, Major Dad. Bastion's on his way to military school the next morning. I'm fairly confident. Yeah, yeah. After, after everything that went down, he doesn't have time to rebuild Fantasia. Yeah, th this kid's got enough going on. Yeah. <laughs> Leave me out of it. Mm -hmm. Um. So. Hold on one second. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to edit this out. There's there's an actual manhunt going on outside. There's like helicopters and police, and uh, somebody at the nearby state hospital stabs somebody. So I'm gonna bow out, but I'm gonna keep the recording going. Okay. But like, there's like all kinds of chaos outside, and I have to like, I have to like guard my house. I think. Okay. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Right, do careful, do what Jim. you gotta do, man. Be safe. Just yeah. uh, so you know, uh, the, the part that I'm moving into next, Jim. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll send you a message about it. All right. Yeah. Just, okay. Um, if, if I don't see that you guys are still on here when I come back, just send me a, a message on the uh, group chat okay. that you're done. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. So now, at this point in the novel, Bastion, when he says Moonchild, he gets sucked into the world of Fantasia. That doesn't happen in the movie. In the movie, she tells him he's got to rebuild Fantasia. And he rides the uh, luck dragon of Valcor uh, to chase down his bullies who wind up in the same dumpster. It's a lame ending. It's no wonder Michael Ende hated it. Um, that is, we just broke down the entire plot of the movie. Um, Wick. Would you like to get into Wick's legal corner? We'll move forward from that point. And there's not necessarily a lot to talk about here because <clears throat> I don't think that any um, U.S. or international lawyer is familiar with the laws of Fantasia. Right. So it really comes down to like the first like, you know, 10 to 15 minutes of the movie. And to emphasize again, 
the first one is truancy, which is any un like any intentional, unjustified, unauthorized, or illegal absence from compulsory education. And I would argue it seems fairly clear that Bastian is going to a public school and so therefore is escaping from it in some way, shape, or form. Now, some of the questions that are related to that are about what we refer to as quote-unquote bullying, which is what I would consider to be a nice way of saying minors actually committing assaults and batteries on people. So the difference between an assault and a battery is that an assault is a threat to actually commit a physical harm to a person or an inappropriate touching or something that they would not like physically to happen to them. Um, whereas battery is actually following through with that. And looking at the movie, pushing a child into a dumpster full on is battery. Like yeah. that's full on battery. And part of the I just issue that, say, we're... Though, that that was clearly a Canadian dumpster. I've never seen a dumpster that nice in the United States ever. Yeah. And I would say the Canadians would probably be angrier at the children for pushing them into right. their nice dumpster. Yeah. Then we would be. So there's that. So this is something where if we're talking about whether or not there's a difference between assault and battery, um, this is something that comes up like a lot of times in popular media where people say that's assault. Oftentimes when they're screaming that's assault, they're actually like referring to battery because they have actually been physically contacted with. So that's something that when you're looking at any like media that like throughout history, if they're talking about things that are assaults, but there's actually been physical contact, what they're probably in most jurisdictions talking about is battery. Okay. So, um, which is an increased level of actual criminal like conduct. So that's something that everyone should be aware of where it's sort of like, you know, you assaulted me. No, what actually happened was this was a battery. So uh, just in general, I think that's something that we all need to be aware about. Uh, and then there's the question of false imprisonment versus kidnapping. So Bastion, beyond being, I think, both assaulted and then battered. And then at that point, thrown into uh, a very nice dumpster, Missy, in Canada. It's still a dumpster. <laughs> right. So that would be something that there's a difference between those two things. So false imprisonment is essentially just preventing someone from moving anywhere while you have control over them. The kidnapping aspect of it adds an element of we're trying to get something from you. And so the three bullies at the beginning say, do you have any money for us? 
okay, if you don't have money for us, then we're going to put you in the dumpster again. So there's clearly a motive to get something from them. So that would actually elevate it to kidnapping, wow. in my opinion. So And extortion as well. I mean, yeah, that, all of that would like fall into it. You could like add those in, but the difference between the false imprisonment, which is simply just not allowing someone to go somewhere, and kidnapping, which is we're not going to let you to go anywhere unless you provide us with this thing, is the difference in this situation. Or because there's a month. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt you. No, 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 go on. No, I'm just asking that. Okay, so Bastion wound up in the dumpster Mm -hmm. and they crawled out and then they spotted him again and chased him back. Does that show any kind of like malicious intent? I mean, yes. Yes, but however, that would still continue on with the kidnapping aspect of it. So that would be very much like I think closer to a situation where uh, you have kidnapped someone and then they try to escape and then you found them and then put them back into the place that they had escaped from. So it would still be kidnapping. I don't know how those charges would actually mount up and that would depend by jurisdiction but those could just be the same charge moving forward right and then uh he winds up with uh um court being trafficked by coriander he goes uh, into out of the frying pan and into the fire yes so I'll I'll skip over that one a little bit, but um so in the bookstore, what he technically did would be considered theft. Mostly That's because true. he just like yeah. stole something. Well, I mean he, he yeah, he stole it. He didn't it doesn't matter yeah. if he didn't even know he he stole it. Yeah. And so that's it's oh, not and the law. Let me let me let me write this down. Can't just leave a note. Yeah. <laughs> so there be like so there is a difference between like theft, robbery, and burglary. <laughs> at that point, um, so theft is just stealing something. Robbery is stealing something with the threat of violence. So basically, saying I'm going to take this from you, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to harm you in some way, shape, or form. And then burglary requires you to actually, like, you know, go into, a like, a person's property when they aren't there to actually remove property from their area. So this is just simple theft at this point. Right. Um, then there's the trespass question, which is interesting because trespass requires that you actually intrude on a person's property without their permission and going to a public school the key is just left out in the open yeah well and also like yeah but going to a public school is clearly something where kind of like i am available and going here and i have permission to be in this place and even 
the question of going up into that weird psychotic attic right is something that comes into play the creepiest kind of like, landscape in the entire movie is exactly that where you're just like yeah this is weird but it is in essence something that you could say well they're a student at the school, so they should have access to the entire building unless you specifically tell them to say, like, to, that, no, you don't have access to this. However, once the school shuts down, does that then transfer right. um, his presence in the attic into something that would be considered to be trespass? So everyone's gone. No one's there to monitor anything. No one expects anyone to be there. And they have clearly not been given permission to do it. It would be a question of whether or not, like, you know, earlier, you should not be here. We're going to, like, remove you from this place and then return you to your class. Like, this becomes more of a situation of it's kind of like, okay, well, there's no one here to monitor you. And therefore, what we're going to do is impose some sort of legal implications on this moving forward so that's like a like a really sort of twisted question on this front because as soon as he starts like you know hiding out under a blanket like lighting candles and reading right. his book after school Fire hours hazardous. you're like is this trespass at this point right and then also the trespass question comes into place with uh, Coriander's bookstore where if he's telling this person I don't want you here you have to leave and they don't oh yeah good point they could like they could ask for a criminal trespass order to be initiated at that point where it's like I've said no this this is my property it's open to the public but now I've said no this person is refusing to leave and they're not doing so. So this becomes a criminal trespass. Um, and you'll see this often on reality TV shows that are based on terrible customers going to places and trying to act a fool. Yes, yes. And they can order a criminal trespass on someone. So it it's not trespass as it's normally like assumed to be but it is the owner of a property saying we're going to turn this into a criminal trespass please leave and then they don't and then they call the police and the police have said you've been criminally trespassed at this point so that would be the situation that one the only one that i have left on this front is child soldiers and this would be an international law issue so atreyu is a child like that's it like none of us can argue that he's not a child unless we understand what the aging situation is in fantasia but he's essentially recruited by the government to actually go through and 
eliminate a harm that is being imposed as far as they understand on the actual i'll say the government structure so that is something that the international community looks very harshly upon and so having him go through that entire like journey is essentially something that is one of the more i will say frowned upon um actions from the international community on individual jurisdictions so if fantasia was meant to be like held responsible for a particular violation it would probably be agreeing that a 12 year old probably child at that point should be the one that is stripped of all of his defensive mechanisms weapons etc and then sent out into the field to actually defend their jurisdiction okay and so that is basically everything from the never-ending story <laughs> all the crimes committed in the never-ending story they were they were they're mostly like committed by like three hooligans right right three dickensian waifs uh-huh okay so just when we thought this film couldn't get any darker i'd like us to i'd like you boys to buckle in because i'm about to make it a whole lot more bleak oh shit uh, <laughs> fellas, i'm muting gonna... i'm muting well, fellas we're gonna talk about the holocaust <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah i know but it's necessary i don't have a lot of jokes for this one what's that i don't have a lot of jokes for this okay but here, here's, you should, here's guy, why. you shouldn't. You shouldn't. I know, I know. I'm just. Here's why. I, a, I was trying to lighten it. <laughs> here's why it's important <laughs> to talk about. Okay, so there, there was, there was something about this movie that was bothering me, and I ran it by Wick, and I ran it by David, and I, I couldn't figure out what it was, and then I did a, a deeper dive. Okay, and this is what I came up with. This is a children's movie made by a German filmmaker based on a novel by a German author both of whom were children in Germany during the Nazi regime and if you dig a little bit further you discover that the book's author Michael Ende when he was 12 years old witnessed the first allied bombing raid on Munich and was actually drafted by the Volkstrom uh, like the Hitler youth basically um, the Nazis when he was only 14 years old but instead he tore up his uh, draft papers and chose to join the secret German resistance group um, founded to sabotage the SS's de uh, declared intention to defend uh, um, he, its intention was to defend Munich until the Mitterrand um, where Ende served as a courier for a remainder of the war so you have two people who lived and had first-hand experience living through one of the darkest times in human history. Um, making a children's story that at its core is a tale about dealing with the aftermath of a society that tore itself apart with savage monstrosity 
and trying to figure out how they could possibly rebuild. When you consider that, it leaves a whole other layer of the onion to peel, knowing that and looking back at the rock fighter scene, like I referenced before, where he says, look at these hands, you know, these look like good, strong hands, um, uh, where there was perceived strength, there was actually weakness or a flaw. It's almost as though um, it was how the people of Ende's generation um, looked at the flaws or the misses of their parents' generation, basically saying, like, we were strong. How could you let this happen? How could we let such a tragedy happen? How could we let people that were supposedly our brethren die? Um, and uh, how could we lose sight of humanity and fail so miserably? And so, to me, this was a children's movie that is an allegory for the Holocaust. And I feel like we, as an um, American audience, were so deeply affected by the uh, darker elements in the film that it almost created like a, a trauma conditioning for us, uh, where we all have some kind of PTSD surrounding this movie. And I think it prevents us from remembering and recognizing like the, the death of architects prevents us from recognizing some of the darker uh, subtext and philosophical elements of this movie. Um, when it's, it's interesting that like now we're living in a society that clearly missed a lot of those memos. Um, the children who were raised on this film are now the grownups. They are the policymakers and we are uh, school board members and congressmen, and at times it feels like we are living in a society that leans towards a fascist ideology. And we see books being banned and we decry anything that's remotely socialist or even humanist in policies. And it's almost as though the deeper messages of this book were lost to us because of the trauma this movie induced. Um, and uh, it's a visually striking reworking of traditional fairy tale troops um, that articulate the needs for stories and storytelling in a world where uh, we are fast becoming indifferent to their existence. Um, so I I think that that's a really interesting subtext to, to, to dive into, um, looking at it through that lens. Makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it really where yeah. You have Fantasia and it's populated with all different people, different beings and characters and all that. And then there's just this huge unnameable faceless dark malevolent force, force that's just not even just wiping it out. Wiping it out is one thing, but it's doing it and then when it's done, everything is going to be static. Everything's going to be the same. Right. Even if it's nothing, it's going to just be homogenous. Right. And and that's that. That's the end of it. And there I will mean, be the, the, no hope, no creativity, no nothing. Right. Right. And that's the that's the main message of the movie is the uh, we can lift ourselves up with creativity. And we can lift ourselves up with imagination and we can, that's how we survive the nothing. That's how we beat this dark malevolent force. 
Michael Ende's father was a uh, a surreal artist in Berlin, uh, and he was like declared an enemy of the state by Hitler. His studio was destroyed. So when you look at that part of his personal autobiographical history, and you realize like that that's what the book is championing. Championing, you know, like we need to put such an importance on these things otherwise we lose sight of humanity if we lose our imagination if we lose our creativity if we lose our freedom of thought then humanity is doomed and uh so i mean it's it, it's it's a it's a movie about the holocaust man i gotta go back i gotta watch it like again now because now my whole I'm view sorry. on this movie is, no 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 don't be sorry because <laughs> now my whole view on the movie has changed because now you go back and you think about the characters you think about um our and you think about morla even the gamort where where they've just given up where it's like no this is what's happening and and you you're either just gonna let ourselves die and be taken by it because what else are you gonna do or you're going to side with it and become an right. agent of it. Right. Well, and like uh, Jim said, Oh, that's fucked, Missy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, guy. No, don't, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry. This is good. Um, Jim had we, said we, like, Missy, you're, you're, I will say you're bringing up the big question at the end, which is, <laughs> we all have to process this a little bit. Oh, I'm sorry. I was, yeah. Well, I was, you know, we're talking about what the takeaways are, watching it through a modern lens. Jim had talked about earlier how the wolf is like pop, common in German folklore, and it was a symbol used by the Nazi party, as were lightning bolts that were shot out of the Sphinx boots. Uh. Um, they were a symbol of the SS. I mean, there's a lot of Nazi imagery in this movie, and there's a lot of really dark subtext to this movie yeah. um you know and that's part of the reason why michael ende was so unhappy with the, with the movie was because he felt like they tied up the ending in a pretty little bow it was and missed hearted. the entire point it, it was too lighthearted it wasn't dark enough Right. He's like, more darkness. More darkness for children. <laughs> These children will sleep tonight. They must be dark like Bavarian chocolates. Yeah. Um, God, these fucking Germans. Yeah, so this movie was <laughs> hella German. Uh, it has uh, the envy. And I mean, it's, it's also... Uh, pretty much uh our our generation's first expo exposure to deeper philosophical concepts the nothing nihilism uh, sartre's existentialism are present in different ways uh the nothing is the opposite of the self or the true self it is you know uh apathy um so it, it's almost like um you know when you have to uh, give a dog a pill and you like wrap it in a piece of cheese. Uh, that's what Wolfgang Peterson and Michael Ende were doing with, uh, you know, German philosophical concepts and um, a Holocaust lesson for children. I'm going to wrap it up in a fantastical, uh, surreal uh, landscape. Uh, 
<laughs> so, um, what are what were our takeaways upon rewatching this movie this time around as adults? So for me, I think my biggest thing is, and this is probably because of all the years I've spent playing tabletop RPGs, is I'm really, I want to understand the magic system behind how this book works, because this is the never-ending story. And how do you tell a never-ending story on a book with finite pages? Like, how many, because he's clearly going through the book as the story goes, so how how does this book function as an actual magical uh object like an like an an altered object how does this book actually create the magic and i know we're not we're not supposed to overthink it because it's a fucking kids movie but i'm such a lore and mechanics nerd i'm like how does this book actually do what it do how does it actually tell a never-ending story with only however many hundred pages are actually between those two covers. Right. Well, the amulet, is it a snakehead or a snake eating its own? It's it's two snakes snakes. intertwined, eating each other's tails. Yeah, it's um... You know, the, that gets into like the whole meta aspect and was Coriander Bastion at some point or, you know, a Bastion-like figure at some point in time. And we know in the novel he gets sucked into the story um, at the point where he says the name Moonchild. Um, but, um, yeah, it's the, the, the meta aspects of it of uh, where does the book be? end and begin in the magic of the book i guess we're not supposed to know i i so I, I'm I have... gonna, can i can i yeah just go ahead yeah, this is quick i'm gonna push back a little bit on that and answer david's question on that point where i'm like in so many ways that's like sort of the question that you asked about you ask about every book this one is fairly like you know really lays out like the meta aspects of it where it's kind of like okay so this is a book about a boy reading a book and the other people that are reading a book about a boy reading a book which is just like expands on exactly what's supposed to happen in terms of what would be like a quote-unquote never-ending story but then also beyond that it's just like every aspect of any book that you're reading, someone puts out something as an author and says, this is what I intend. And everyone who reads it is sort of like, but that's not how I interpreted it. And then everyone else who reads it further on is like, I don't interpret it that way as well. But I interpret it this way, which is different from the way that you interpret it. So for me, the concept of like the never ending story is very much the fact that there's no sort of ethereal restriction on exactly how people can interpret texts. And like, it's once you actually put it out there, you're sort of like, okay, this is going to be read differently by hopefully 
hundreds of thousands of people, but at least, you know, a few people who are looking at it and saying, this is what I've like, you know, garnered from this. And it's not your responsibility to make sure that like, you can actually like gauge that and hold it together and make sure that it's like, you know, only for like, you know, interpreted in the way that you want to, because you can't, because you're putting it out there for the world. And so like, for me, that's sort of what the message of the never ending story is, is that it just goes on and on and on because people are going to be having exactly the conversations that we're having today. Yeah. If, if Bastion and Coriander are the same uh, or serve the same function, uh, Bastion now the alpha and Coriander, the Omega, at what point does Bastion in the cycle become Coriander? And is that, is that the key to the running story that it requires a, a child's imagination to keep it going? Because Coriander is reading the book in the beginning, but if 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 everything's dying, it's because he's old, right? Yes, hmm. and it needs and the the never-ending story needs a new storyteller. Um. But I think that again, yeah, at that like to that point, I like I would argue that every story needs new teller. Like that's I think that's for me that's the point of it, where it's like you know this is not something that's again an end; it's a beginning. You're moving through and figuring out exactly like oh, this is what I can now gain from you know, this narrative and tell a new story and help other people tell a new story. Yeah. Um, Wick, what were your big takeaways this time around? Of the movie? Yeah. Um, good question. Uh, So, in all honesty, like, reviewing it a couple of times, I'm like, where does the childlike empress, childlike empress stand, like, in this field? Because they seem so self-assured about this is how it should move forward, and partially this is, like, landing on the sequel as well. And I'll just bring that up because the there is something that happened. Um, but like it's there's, 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 there's sort of like, you know, a command that she has in this or they have in this where they're like, no, this is how you need to view it. That, command is actually like a little bit meta like the rest of the movie but i'm like well how much is this like you know narrative and charged like charged by her right well she's an oracle you know yeah. she's all seeing all in, but she has no power and that's the one of the theories about why she's called Moonchild. Like I said, she's only able to reflect um, the light, the wisdom, the creativity from other people. She's not able to generate it herself. 
Yeah. And also like the fact that she's or they're I'll say they're named the child like Empress. Yeah. Where it's very much like, you know, we constantly look at her as a child, but Right. She might not be something she's just infinite. about. Yeah. Yeah, she's infinite. So she's childlike, but she is infinite. Mm-hmm. Um she's more of a symbol. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, guy, any takeaways this time around versus the first time? Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very bizarre movie, like, especially watching it now that I'm older. When I was a kid, it was like, oh, wow, Atreo is really cool. And, you know, the, the thing with Artax drowning was, was really sad and horrible. And, you know, I, I watch it now and there's always new things to discover and now you know you drop the holocaust thing on us and and that's a whole yeah. other angle <laughs> and and you know and that's it's fascinating you know and it, and it's still a fascinating movie because it's so it's so outlandish and so bizarre and at the same time i mean it does manage to tell a, a pretty interesting story i mean you know once you get past you know the uh, you know the special effects not really holding up as well, or or That's the costumes and things yeah. like that. I mean, it, it's an it's an interesting story. I mean, yeah. you know, and it's and in that way, I mean, I, I think the movie was successful in doing that, and I think that's why it holds up. I think it's why it has the staying power it has. I think my biggest takeaway, um, to bounce off of what you said, is, and what I'm about to say might be sacrilege, but. You know, it's a movie that's got really deep, resonant messages that I think are important. But I think we're living in a time where those specific messages are kind of muted and lost um, in some areas. And it's a movie that might do well with a remake. And I know that's sacrilege to say that, but the... It's it's a very it's like look I try to show the original Star Wars trilogy to my kids and it's very hard for them to be forgiving of the antiquated special effects um because of what they're used to um it, it, and I I see that for a lot of movies that we consider classics they just don't translate to younger generations because the visual effects are so antiquated it, it pulls the viewer out of the movie yeah, and really, you know, dumbs it down in, or dulls it in a way or dulls the viewing experience. Um, I think that this is a movie with a really important message um, from source material that is extremely profound and has a really you know, definite message. Um, I think it's a shame that there are elements of it, first of all, that it, it's almost like trauma porn, like the death of Artax, where there's just, it. it's hard to get past certain elements of the movie to really get into the meat and potatoes of it, which I think is unfortunate. Um, I do think it holds up in some ways, um, in other ways, it 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 doesn't hold up, which yeah. is unfortunate. Um, it it almost makes you. I'm not even gonna say it. I was gonna say it's almost it makes like 
Lucas, uh, George Lucas going in. No, it doesn't forgive the edits to the um, no, 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 episodes, that. episodes four through six. And nothing forgives that. But, but you, uh, but I, but I understand the uh, the maybe desire as a filmmaker to do that. Although I don't agree with it. You know, like it feels like a cash grab. But um, you know, it was a cash grab. Right. Yeah. Because yeah, it was. Because uh, it was. Right. Yep, yeah. Exactly. No. No. We're, we're. I think we're all in agreement that the. You know. Um. Good. But you know, I, I, I wouldn't be mad if someone came along and wanted to remake this movie. I could be on board with a remake if they actually gave a shit about the source material, and that tends to be the biggest problem with a lot of remakes. There's very few remakes that actually seem to care about the movie that they're remaking. And yeah. I also think that because of the way studios operate now, they would dilute a lot of the message in order to make oh, it marketable. A hundred percent. It would have to be made in Germany. Yeah. You would you would have to make it outside of the Hollywood have system. To make it outside of the Hollywood system. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's like, no um... way it would survive otherwise. A hundred percent. Like uh like kind of what they did with Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. What it wasn't like a Hollywood movie. It was made in Spain and he had, you know, Del Toro had full creative control and they said, Here's your money, you can do whatever you want to do. And you know, it, it wasn't the uh you know, it wasn't exactly a Holocaust movie, but it was the Spanish Civil War. Right. I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. Could you, you know, imagine? No, that's a great example. Yeah. Could you imagine yeah. the never ending story if Guillermo del Toro oh. got his hands on it? Like, dear God, it would be amazing. Oh my God. Just, I mean, you, you, you look at what he could come up with and what he could do, even like stuff that's, you know, just any of it. I mean, especially like when you look at like the work he did on like Hellboy and things like that, you can make something right. really interesting and cool right. and just, you know, give him the money. Find right. some German benefactor, give him a pile of money, and say, "Make your movie." Yeah, and, and, so, and... go on. I'm sorry. So, yeah, no, no, no. Um, on that point, I'd be like, it would be fantastic if Fantastica, if they actually decided to do, you know, sort of a back-to-back movie of the first and second chapters they peter jackson it whatever. and make both movies at the same time exactly like do that so that you have either like the same actors or something where there's a consistent like a consistency like in terms of like you know moving forward because in actuality like you know this like the second it like the sequel to the never ending story was completely like accurate in many ways in terms of like, you know, moving forward with the narrative, mm -hmm. but was also deeply terrible in so many ways, right. like and literally every other aspect to the point that none of the original cast came back except for the childlike yeah. empress. Let's not yeah. forget they made a third one too. Oh, the nasties. Yeah, and and Jack Black played one of the bullies in that. It was one of his first parts. He did. It was awful. <laughs> yeah, so no, just was, like as long yeah. as there's like like that plan in effect, I'd be fully on back. Like you know, on yeah, with you it. would need someone like a like a Del Toro or like a, a Peter Jackson who is really going to 
honor the source material and uh but elevate the production values yeah right uh, now i feel uh, like we're we're talking about things that are going to come out <laughs> i think the mountains of madness is what i want del toro to actually focus on yep. moving forward because i want him to do some of that 100 i love that story Ooh, um, Ooh, one, one of Lovecraft's least racist stories. <laughs> <laughs> that, a that's, steep curve. That's saying something. Yeah, difficult <laughs> to find. Uh, would let's not forget the. Uh, let's not forget the cat and uh, the rats in the walls. Who would get the remake? Who's actually doing the remake, though? Who Who would they get? Like, I mean, Seth Rogen. Like who's no. gonna do it? Well, no, but you know what though? If but who um, would actually do it? Seth, Seth Rogen did um the adaptation of Preacher for AMC. Yes, he did. And, and you know what? And and considering that it was very different from the comics, but but you also got to consider that the comics were twenty years before uh, he did the adaptation, so they kind of dragged it kicking and screaming into the twenty first century. But it wasn't bad. Yeah, who considers early producer? It was so very good. Who in Hollywood right now is our age and grew up with the movie and would say, "Oh, I could do a good job with this." Kevin oh, Smith. Story. Kevin Smith. Kevin Smith or Guillermo del Toro. I don't I'm know that Kevin Smith could do it. Right. I'm sorry. I I feel like I started this, but I believe that we've sort of gone off the rails and started talking about other movies as opposed to anything else so that would probably cause difficulty in the editing so i feel like we ended well uh so right? pretty much um so a few more questions uh does it still hold up is it yes. still an enjoyable movie yeah i i think so I, I message think so. wise yes uh as you pointed out a couple times uh also as you pointed out a couple times production wise not really but at the same time when you consider how old it is some like i was saying earlier some of the puppetry does seem a little bit ahead of its time considering it came out in 1984 so yeah. yes uh, but with a but yeah yeah it's it's with yes that. with a caveat it's yes that it's still a movie that you could take a lot away from but um like i said my 15 year old thought that it was you know like the special effects are corny i don't know you know like anyone who is going to be impressed or taken in or be able to submerge themselves in like the world of special effects are too young to understand the bigger philosophical concepts or to uh we you know like uh endure the death of Artax. so it's it's uh it's it's straddling a weird fence, but I, I think it does hold up. As and I would say, like I would I would argue on that front, we're all still alive, so yay for us. Um, <laughs> and like if it's introduced to like like some of the kids that were around or that we have at seven or eight the actual like like physical or special effects aren't going to necessarily matter um but i don't think these are philosophical questions that's like you know children should not be introduced to oh as no yeah. like early yeah. as possible 
No, I, so, I, I think that they should be introduced them, but I think that some of it is going to go over their head the way it went over our head when we watched it the first time. Maybe yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah. um, that's why, you know, seven or eight, they're not going to necessarily like see, wait, that doesn't look like what it's supposed to. And I think that's like sort of like for the special effects. That's where I think like the major question is where it's like if you show this some like to someone who's fifteen years old, they're like, "What? That looks cheap and fake, and I don't want to watch it." Jim, do you think it holds up? You know, I still felt feelings. I didn't like it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> It's still, you know, so uh, its ability to stir emotional response. Yeah. 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 Mm. I think Jim had the best answer. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. definitely. Well, yeah, I, I, cry, I cried a couple times. Okay, I so I think we know what Jim's answer is. Do we still love it? Uh, yeah, yeah. I I, I have like a complicated it. relationship with this movie, and that's my answer. Um, it it holds up in terms of Gen X movies. Like, uh, it's pretty wholesome in the sense that there's not a, any racism or sexism or you know obscenity or anything like that. Um, it's uh, but. I I think I had I think I never liked this movie. Um I respect this movie. That's fair. Yeah, that, that's a fair assessment. I mean, I did like it a lot as a kid going back and watching it now after watching so many other fantasy films for so much longer. Like it definitely doesn't hold the place in my heart that a movie like Willow does. Where right. like I'll seek out to watch Willow or Legend or something like that, right. which is why I haven't seen Labyrinth. it since I was ten. Right. But well, I loved it as a kid when there was so little to choose from. Was it the gateway to fantasy for just about all of us? I think so. Yeah, like, yeah, for, yeah. I think so. Star Wars and yeah, this, both that yeah. and the Dark Crystal. I I would say were my two biggest introductions to fantasy yeah. film, and Star Wars. And so I I loved it for what it was because it was an escape for me. It was like my gateway into fantasy. But after having so much other fantasy stuff to choose from. It definitely would not be my first choice to go back As, to. It was your gateway to fantasy and boobs. <laughs> so, I mean, it's got to hold a special place in some of your hearts. The heart yeah, I, will, I, the will, I, will, I will say, I feel like I have the highest praise for it. And I will always it seems like a very actually love movie. it. This seems like a very wick movie. It's like it's it's one of my favorites. Yeah, I can see. And that. you know, part of it is just like you know, fair. Like I just like remember, like I have memories of watching it in my grandma's bedroom on her black and white TV and seeing what's going down. And I feel like it's actually like you know, like relatively like tight in terms of fantasy movie, considering how much goes on in it. 
Yes. So, uh, like, I'll give it that credit that I think it deserves. I understand that it's not necessarily for everyone, but it's sort of like it's like it holds a very nostalgic place in my heart. So I'll always fair. go back to it to be like yeah. that, this that's is fair. What... I mean, it holds a lot of nostalgia for me too. It's just not all of the nostalgia is good nostalgia. You know what I mean? Like some of it is just like, oh, it's I it, it it's like uh Jim said it makes me a little uncomfortable in, in but I think that that was always the case. Yeah. Um I think it's, if anything now I have maybe uh more of an appreciation for it but I still see its flaws. It's uh, the kind of nostalgia like watching your parents fight at Christmas because you love Christmas but at the same time it was awkward because you had to watch your parents fight. Also, probably most of the movies we talk about during the next few episodes. It's like, we like this, but we recognize how it damaged us. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, that's uh, welcome to the podcast. Like. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like, it's almost, I would say it's almost like going to your friend's house and watching his parents fight. Yeah. Right, oh, that's right. even worse. Yeah. That, that's yeah, even yeah, that way more worse. awkward. That is way more awkward. At least in that case, you can get up and leave, though. Huh. Yeah, but but what if like you're too young to drive and it's far away? Right, and you also you also oh. don't want you also have to like when that happens, you also kind of have to play it cool to your friend so they don't feel bad or mortified. Like, uh, you know, like it's not, yeah, it's okay, it's not that big of a deal. It's fine, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah. you don't want your friends. Yeah. Like, your parents like are embarrassing, and I'm not leaving because of that. <laughs> but I am leaving. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing to do with the yeah, throwing dishes. I just remembered I have stuff to do at home. Nick, right? we haven't spoken in like 22 years, but in the off chance you're listening to this podcast, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a good amount of wood cutting that I have to get done right now. Uh, I gotta and my... yes, we don't have a chimney or a fireplace, but it needs to happen right now. Right. Get I off my back. And... I'm not asking you about your parents' bad marriage. Stop asking me about the wood cutting I have to do at home right now that I forgot about until your parents started fighting. <laughs> I, I have to leave and talk to my therapist about Sphinx boobies. Sphinx boobies. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's probably because I don't maybe he wants to read to his bathroom or something. I think we found the, <laughs> the title of the, the episode is going to be Sphinx Boop. I was I was legitimately going to say that as well, where it's kind of like okay, so clearly the title of this episode. See? Look, that's is why I'm Sphinx here. Boobies. This is why I'm here. I brought. I only. I only bring out the biggest guns, guy. I pay. I pay one hundred and fifty dollars <laughs> an hour to talk about Sphinx boobies while sitting on a fainting couch. <laughs> well guys yeah, I, th I think we covered everything and then some in terms we covered everything but the Sphinx boobies they're still the, out the never we have definitely covered the Sphinx boobies and we gotta leave guys something to talk about with this therapist um, <laughs> thank you everyone for listening we so appreciate it um, we're hoping to make this a more interactive experience with the audience so if you shoot us an email at uh, the retromania podcast at gmail.com um, or uh, join the Facebook group, also the Retromania podcast, Instagram, 
you'll be able to keep up with what we're doing there. And if you write to us, we'll happily read it um, on the air. Also, if there's a movie that you want to talk about, uh, you want to work through before you talk to your therapist about it, uh, let us know. Or we'll have you on as a guest. Um, announcing episode three, Revenge of the Nerds. Um, so until then, um, uh, do you guys want me to send everyone out? Send us out. We've got Bush. Okay. <laughs> okay. I am Missy Allison. I have been joined with uh, by Jim Loki, McShreve, Guy Gardino, and David Stevens. This is the Retromania Podcast, and we are out of here.